Welcome to the Rest Talk channel, a scientific podcast around type 2 inflammation and respiratory diseases. This podcast is supported by the medical department of Sanofi Genzyme. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Professor Sanna Toppilasalmi, ENT specialist at the University of Eastern Finland in Kuopio. And joining me today is the distinguished Professor Philip Schwert, ENT specialist at the Department of Otorinolaryngology at the University of Ghent, Belgium. How are you today, Philip? I'm fine, Sana. Nice to meet you again. There is a big debate nowadays that we have now the true possibility to get fully remission of CRS with nasal polyps. And actually the same goes now with the same debate on asthma, which maybe is something new that we can really see super responders. And, and now it's it's a time started the discussion that, that we don't just need patients that are relatively good controlled. Can, can we really heal the polyp patients and how? How yeah, is that possible? It's a, it's a very ambitious question. And I think at this stage, we always talked about control. Are you fine? But we need to be more ambitious. For the patient, we don't want only control. We want control and more. We want control for long term. So with this consensus group, we thought about what could be remission. And we said, well, if you have control for 12 months under classical treatment, uh, so, so excluding systemic steroids, or surgery, then we can call it remission. But we have to add one thing. For remission, you need an endoscopy of an ENT surgeon who is looking whether there is no active disease. So if you have active polyps with crusting and with secretions, then you cannot call that remission. So it's the combination of control for symptoms with an endoscopic control, seeing that there is no active disease for 12 months under normal treatment, and I mean excluding surgery and systemic steroids. It can, of course, be under a biological. Uh, and that is what we at this stage would call remission. But this is this is what we defined as remission. But we should have this ambition to look into remission because that's what we really want, because maybe in those patients with remission, we can taper down the treatment after a while. And in those that, that we don't get full remission, we should not do that. So we have to learn or play with remission. I have to remind maybe the audience or the people listening is that with surgery, you get 20% full remission, full cure of disease. This is not bad. It's the only treatment at this stage where you can get so far. Uh, so and, and and indeed we want to get further. We want to go for more patients going into remission. For biologicals, we still have to prove that we can go into remission. And I'm certain that we will do that in the next five or 10 years. We will show that with probably some biologicals we will get there. But that's the next aim. That's the next ambition we have. Yeah, that is really true, and it, it's a good percentage. But I agree that that this is very important. That that we must be more ambitious because nowadays we have the possibilities. So then, back to pathogenesis of polyps. It is definitely there's something wrong in the microbiome interaction or dysbiosis interacting with aberrant mucosa. 
And and so polyps are really that it's an inflammatory disease, an inflammatory process, and maybe that explains why then eighty percent, more or less, uh, do not get or are not fully recovered after surgery because it's not a surgical problem for many patients. Then there must be also tissue remodeling, which mm. um, which is very complex. And, and in the maybe more late stage uh, event. So can you tell Philip something about this and how it makes uh, the, or does it have a role in the, in the severity or progression of polyps or maybe the relapses? I think we have to go back. What is a polyp? Do we need a polyp? Is a polyp protective or only a bad thing? I think at first a polyp is a backup protection system. And the polyp, they grow on the most vulnerable places in the nose, on the lamina orbitalis or the lamina papyracea, which is close to the eye, on the lamina cribrosa to the brain, on the skull base. I think it's a physical barrier that we build when we have a dangerous or microorganism that is attacking us. And if we cannot win or er eradicate immediately what we do, we make a, a wall and we put an army inside to keep that enemy, the microorganism, not invading into our eye or into our brain. So that's a polyp. But if this threat is gone, then the polyp should go away. And that is, to my opinion, what in some patient goes wrong. So the polyp stays there. And I already highlighted that Staphylococcus Arius, they might take advantage of the situation to stay there and to perpetuate the disease. And what we do see, if you wait long enough, is that in the nasal polyps, you get an whole army of B and T cells that are there locally. You can find uh, follicle-like structures that, that drive the disease, that keep uh, long-lived plasma cells that keeps on driving this disease locally. And, and the next step is indeed that you get big polyps. And that is, of course, uh, tissue remodeling, but also you get bone thickening, you get bone neoformation, you get this uh, things you can see on the scanner where, where your bone gets thick and inflamed. And if you wait long enough, it's it's getting harder and harder to, to treat. And actually, in clinics, that's what you see. If you do an early intervention with surgery, in the UK, there was a big um, investigation by Claire Hopkins where she looked whether early intervention with surgery and polyps was more beneficial than late intervention. And she found that early intervention was actually preventing more severe disease and asthma developing in those patients. So I think that we don't have to wait until the disease is long-term there and is making more um, of problems and, and tissue remodeling. And, and that's the problem today is that we treat only the end stage of our patients with biologicals that are that are probably gone too far already. I'm not convinced that we can totally return the bot uh, formation, or the, I mean, the bone neoformation. We cannot redo that. Maybe we, it's maybe too ambitious. But if we can start earlier by early intervention, uh, we will probably not get this sinus wrecks, as we say, the, the, so the, the sinuses that have been operated 15 times where you see thick bone. I hope this is something of the past. We, we should not have that. And by early intervention, probably uh, one surgery and then starting with the biological, we will never get 
that far anymore. And, and that's my hope that early intervention we will prevent this severe um, remodeling that we see in some end stage of our patients. Yes, I also think that remodeling is is the real problem in in advanced disease and and uh, after recurrent surgeries and maybe we don't know yet enough whether certain people are more prone to to develop with remodeling. Still, it is very difficult to treat, and and this is important in the future. Probably that we can also predict the risk, and and uh, maybe choose other other approaches like medical or, or biologics for for those who who are more prone to to develop with remodeling for instance and actually this uh, your your excellent answer is now related to to my next question which is related to the treatment process of polyposis when we start from the from the situation that the patient visits pharmacists to get some help for, for the symptoms in due to nasal polyposis and then primary care level and all the treatment process levels like secondary and then tertiary care. And we have operations, we have biologics, uh, intranasal corticosteroids, oral corticosteroids. So, Philip, uh, in your opinion, what uh, aspects need improvement in this treatment process? What would you think are the three most important steps now that we really need to improve? I think we need, and I, I already said that, I think we need to think about early intervention and, and we need to define maybe in those, we, we if we would be able to predict patients where we really need early intervention, and I think I think we can do that, but we have to define the, the, the type two high patients in a better way and not indirectly. So I think that's one of the things. If we can predict who are the ones that will need biologicals anyhow, we should start early. So early intervention and prediction of who these patients are is crucial to not have repeated surgery after repeated surgery. And, and that's a first question, to my opinion. A second question is, how long do we have to treat those patients? Will they live long or not? Will we combine surgery with biologicals? That's, that's the kind of question we will now get out of the real-life data. How many patients do still need a combination of uh, surgery and a biological? Um, and... That's a thing we we can't know. So so my recommendation to anyone using biological is, is keep track of what you are doing. Every country has different prescribing rules. Every even hospital sometimes has different reimbursement rules. So track your own patient and keep track of that because that's where we will learn. We are now collectively learning how to work and then we have to put our experience together from a country where it's hard to prescribe to a country where it was easy low threshold to prescribe biologicals and see whether that influences outcome at the end and and i'm i'm convinced that in the next five years we will be able to write better guidelines on long-term use of biologicals at this stage I cannot give you the answer but that's one thing we really have to go for so early prediction who to treat with the biological, better endotyping, and then 
the treatment schemes on how long we have to treat and eventually the combination with surgery, whether uh, how to do that is, is the four questions I think we need to answer. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> that is true. There are many that we need to resolve. I think every steps or levels, so the, the early awareness of the patient that he might get help so that he, he should visit the primary care doctor. And then in primary care, they must know how to, in the first place, how to treat normally the polyps, how to diagnose them, and then uh, to to follow up and if uncontrolled, then the, the, the referral to hospital. And then also in the hospital that they're really good or going to be always all the time now better and better treatment schemes such as in EPOS. And there's also more to come all the time. And um, then especially I think those having double disease, both uh, CRS with polyps and asthma, I would also would like to point out the importance of the collaboration between pulmonologists and ENT specialists, maybe in children with pediatrician or allergists. Anyway, I think it's important, especially when it seems based on research that uh, especially these patients maybe uh, they benefit early, early and active treatment, and they they have usually difficult. Uh, stage of the disease. So, so that really predicts the occurrence of polyps after surgery and aspirin intolerance. So it's important that in the, in the tertiary and secondary care, the, this, there is the possibility to collaboration. I, so, I fully agree with you, Sana, that uh, ENT doctors and lung physicians and medicine should work together because one treatment can treat several organs, I can treat the nose, the lung, the skin. And it's important that we make the right choice for the right patient. And this choice can only be made by several people. Sometimes we get in a situation that the lung physicians say, well, uh, but the lung is fine. Uh, and, and that's more important than the nose. So no, let's choose the one that works good for the nose and the lung in one time, rather than giving two biologicals or first starting with the wrong biological and and you are fully right if if we have to make the right choices and and being a friend with your lung physician in our situation is a good thing yes yes and i like like uh, to be friends with with many specialists and in that way i would like to say that it is also fantastic that we have now uh, excellent uh, scientific associations like like European Academy of Allergology and Clinical Immunology, such uh, one example, which also uh, uh, facilitates this possibility to to uh, have good connections scientifically, also internationally, but it's also very important in the local hospital. Um, my final question is maybe the most important. So, so it's related um, to patient participation, uh, which there, there are loads of studies showing both in CRS, uh, rhinitis and asthma, how important it is. And actually it's important in every disease. And actually it's known that uh, the compliance or the how the patient takes the medication uh, according to instructions, the, the the percentage is is very low or relatively low. So, uh, how do you do when you would like to encourage patient participation in their their treatment 
plan. And I mean, especially maybe this is the local treatment or the basic baseline treatment of polyposis. So what, how do you, what are your your kind of yeah. tips for that? I think um, at this stage with the biologicals, we don't suffer that much. Um, but you are right with the local treatments like the nasal corticoids, there is a very bad compliance in patients. Uh, because they are a little bit disappointed in the effect, although they used it, it didn't resolve or it didn't prevent them from going into surgery, and 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 so that was always a hard thing. I prescribe the drug, and they say, "Oh, you don't have to prescribe it. I still have a lot at home." Then you know actually that they didn't use it in the right way. And I think for nasal corticoids, especially, the compliance was very low. Now for biologicals. At this stage, as we treat only the severe patients that are eligible for the biologicals, the, the involvement of the patient is very high. But even then, we have to realize that, at least in my hospital, the first three months, we, we learn them how to use it. And it's the nurse that learns them how to inject themselves with the biologicals. And then they have to do it themselves at home. And and as long as you have them in your your hands in the hospital, then they come, you know that they give it and they give it in the right way. But we already experience patients that when they are at home, they don't inject every 14 days or every month. They they are prolonging and then they say, Oh yes, I forgot and I got I forgot to get my reimbursement form to my health insurance and, and it took me eight weeks and then it was 12 weeks. So in real life, you see a lot of problems with patients self-injecting and getting all their paperwork done in time. And I think the paperwork is one problem. The self-injections, we we have nurses, and the nurse, nurses learn them how to do that, and they do a follow-up. They are a contact line. They have a telephone number, so they can always call. But But... One of the problems with that is we provide it as academic institution. We say we have a nurse and you can call that nurse. But at this stage, we have already several patients on that. And this nurse is not paid or reimbursed by government by anything. Just by answering a phone, you don't you are not paid. I do not know how it's in Finland, but in Belgium, that doesn't work like that. So actually, we are paying this aftercare, this this involvement of patients. And, and to my opinion, that's a problem. If we think about treatment of severe upper and lower airway diseases, both for asthma and for uh, um, uh, up, severe upper airway disease, we need to have this kind of system where patients can be in contact with a nurse that helps them in case of problems with their injections at home. And at this stage, this is a struggle. In in Belgium, there is no reimbursement plan for that. And I'm not certain it's in, in other countries that way. Um, and without the nurses, it won't work. I get 15 minutes to do the whole thing with my patients, to explain everything, to convince them, to do the indication, to get all the paperwork done. And maybe two times 15 minutes, but then it's over. And then, then they have to, to do it on their, on their own. And it's a struggle. I do not know, Sana, how you solve it in your country. We do that now with our academic means. But on the long term, I see a big trouble in how will we follow up on those patients and who will they contact and who will who will follow up on these patients when they do things at home and when they have questions. Yes, I agree that that is really a challenge. And it's actually very important. So what I've been seeing 
in my outpatient clinic for years when I see those severe CRS with polyp patients uh, regularly, maybe once a year or something. So still, if they have used or had the disease since two decades or, or more than 20 years, they, they benefit uh, from from the kind of um, uh, advising how to use and and really to to train every time and actually it seems that they benefit when when doctor also tells it so it's it's very important of mm. course also it's important to to be performed also by nurses then there might be some uh, benefit when there are these kind of, uh, we have the health village project uh, provided by government or, or national hospital districts. That is a web page with videos and information for patients, probably mobile applications following up the symptoms for, for especially younger groups and so on. But this is really something extremely important because in clinical trials, I think quite often we see that all patients benefit, also those uh, receiving placebo, because due to the clinical setup, they are asked to use regularly the local uh, local uh, treatment properly. Of course, it, it doesn't, we can't talk about the recovery, but, but of course, we can discuss whether it's in part placebo effect, but but I believe it's also that they start to say that that now they really understand what does it mean when, when to use regular medication. So I would like to end up this very nice discussion with with these thoughts and and there's uh, loads of things that we need to research but we are we are progressive very in a fantastic way based on the knowledge and uh, and the science and uh, new possibilities so thank you very much professor philip for, for the fantastic discussions and i so much appreciate all your knowledge in in clinics in science and everything and i i wish to all the audience a uh, good day and and uh, thank you for for following this this discussion thank you very much thank you very much and goodbye